So this is the, the second week in Epiphany, and we are doing a series on the teachings of Jesus. And uh, for the first three, three weeks of Epiphany, we're looking at what Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. Because everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus did, comes under this statement that he made. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Last week, we looked at what is the kingdom of God like. And we concluded that the kingdom of God is a lot like its king. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, he means it quite literally. That the kingdom of God is making a personal appearance because the king is walking in your midst. So when you see Jesus heal someone, when you see Jesus mend a body, this is a glimpse into the wholeness of the kingdom of God. When we see Jesus teach about ethics, we see that this is a glimpse into the way things will be when God finally establishes his reign on earth. And, and what Jesus does and says then is all a picture into the kingdom of God. And so if we want to know what the kingdom of God is like, we need to know what the king is like. This week, I want to focus on the way into the kingdom of God. St. Paul writes in his letter to the Colossians, God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. You see, simply acknowledging the kingdom of God isn't what Jesus is driving at. He's always after a response. His message always comes with repent and believe. His desire then is to take us out of the kingdom of darkness and bring us into his kingdom of light. And he doesn't want to just convey that information. He wants lives to be changed by that information. So if you open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 11, we're going to be looking at verses 29 through 36 this morning. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look first at the challenge of the kingdom of God. Second, we're going to look at the place the kingdom should have in our lives. And then finally, we're going to look at the power of the kingdom of God. And by looking at the challenge of the kingdom of God, the place of the kingdom of God, and the power of the kingdom of God, we will see the way into the kingdom of God. Now, if we're honest, this passage, verse 29, starts a little odd, doesn't it? When the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, this generation is an evil generation. Like, this is Great church planting advice. You know, as your church starts to grow, start calling them evil. And this is even a little out of ordinary for Jesus. This is not usually how he responds to, to crowds. It's, he does it sometimes, but more often than not, he'll sit down and he'll teach the crowds. He'll even feed the crowds. He'll engage the crowds. And then afterwards, he'll go home and have dinner with someone. This seems a little odd. What is going on here? It's helpful to, look, to recognize all of chapter 11 is is really a chapter of controversy and conflict. In verses 14 through 11, Jesus had recently been accused of being Beelzebul, the prince of demons. This is not a good start to anyone's day. And then there are other people coming to Jesus, demanding signs from heaven that Jesus prove uh, who he is. And so with the crowd increasing here, the, the, the gathering of people, it's not necessarily because they are receptive to the message of the kingdom, but they want to be spectators and investigators. And by and large, there is suspicion towards Jesus. They want Jesus to prove himself. And Jesus knows this. This is why he says in verse 29, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. This whole issue with signs hasn't gone away. And it's this desire for a sign that makes the generation evil. And you might be thinking, well, what's so bad with wanting a sign from God? 
I think many of us here, like, we wouldn't mind if God would drop us a sign. You might be trying to figure out, is Jesus really who he is? And you would pray and you'd hope that God would reveal himself in such a way that you understand that Jesus is who he is. Like that sort of sign, like that seems not so bad, does it? And I, I don't think it is. In the Gospels, we see Jesus do miraculous things. We see promises that signs will accompany the Gospel. So what then is the problem? You see, it's one thing to ask God to make himself known to you in a way that you can understand. But that's not the sort of sign Jesus is talking about here. When I first started following Jesus, I was very, very reluctant. One foot in, one foot out, really trying to figure out, like, is this worth giving my life to? And I started praying for signs because I wasn't totally sure. And this was during my undergraduate studies. And each day I would pray, God, make yourself known to me in a way that I understand. And each day on my walk from my apartment to school, I would find a tract on the ground. I'd never noticed these things before, but I would find them. You know these things, the, the little, they're little but like amazingly blunt pamphlets about Jesus that usually are very negatively telling you that you're going to go to hell unless you believe in the piece of paper. So I would find this and I would think, wow, God really heard my prayer. But then I would think, well, it's such an ordinary sign. Like some person just dropped that there and I found it. How can I really know it was from God? So the next day I'd pray again. And then the next day I would seriously find another track in another place. And this time I would ask, do you know the man? And I would think, yeah, I do, I think. But then I wasn't sure, could this just be a coincidence? And so I'd repeat the cycle. Day after day, I'd found them. You know, I'd found the most disappointing of them all, the infuriating fake $100 bill. You pick it up, it turns around like disappointed. You'll be disappointed if you don't believe in Jesus. <laughs> then one day, I found a tract where like, only Alistair Stern could find this tract. It was tucked in a brick wall on the side of a building. And it, it looked like gum. I don't even know why I stopped. And I, I pulled it out and I opened it and it was a handwritten track. And I opened it and it said, Dear Alistair. And I was like, okay, no, that's not what it said. It was, a, it, was a, it was a testimony. Someone had handwritten their testimony on like three pieces of paper folded up and it was powerful. And this Jesus, I should follow him. But then I wasn't sure and I'd pray again and repeat the cycle. You see what's happening here, it, Asking for a sign, it's only a problem when you're ignoring the signs that God has already given you. The people who are standing before Jesus, they've witnessed signs. Some of them might have seen him multiply the bread. Some of them will have seen bodies put back together. Some of them would have seen demons cast out. All of them probably heard much of Jesus' teachings. But they still want more. It's not enough. And so in a way, they're forcibly shutting their eyes and telling Jesus that he needs to pry their eyes open to see him. They need signs. And so really, they want to be dazzled into the kingdom of God. They're treating Jesus like a circus. Signs are like fireworks. Bursts of light quickly dazzling, and then they fade away. And you, you, you simply can't be wowed into the kingdom of God. This is why the kingdom of God is, is more than signs. Signs, uh, even if we see them, even if we get a sign in our life, they can never replace a proper response. They can never replace repenting and believing. When I kept finding tracks, it was my sign. But despite the tracks' best efforts in a hundred words on a small piece of paper to get me to believe in the gospel, 
I simply didn't want the gospel in the entirety. I wanted some sort of sign that would do the work of believing in God for me so that I could have my belief but also keep my life exactly as I had it. The issue was that I didn't really want to change. I didn't want to have to admit that there were parts of my life that I had to let go of and repent of. The challenge here in Luke is that the crowd doesn't really want to change for the kingdom of God. They want the kingdom of God to be accommodated for them. They don't want to change for the kingdom's sake. But the question has to be asked, does wanting signs really warrant calling them evil? When we use that word evil, none of us are thinking, oh, people that pray for signs from God or demand signs from God. That's not what we think of when we think of evil. We think of the Ted Bundys the Joseph Stalins of the world. We think of serial killers and political tyrants. That's evil, and you're right. And it's more than likely you think, well, I'm not like them, so I'm not evil then. I'm actually a half-decent person. And again, you're right, compared to Ted Bundy, like you are committing elementary school sins. You haven't even reached college yet. Jesus, he knows, he knows that the people he just called evil don't think that they're evil. They're actually quite religious. They are God's people, by and large. They, they are doing all the right stuff. They believe they've got God figured out. And, and so Jesus, what he's doing is challenging their categories of good and evil. Look at verses 29 through 32 with me. No sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. It's such a clever response from Jesus. It's carefully structured to get to the heart of why he's calling these people evil. First, the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south. She was the ruler of a foreign Gentile nation, Sheba. And yet she traveled across the world when she heard that Solomon was the wisest man in the world. It says in 1 Kings 10 that she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Remember the people listening to Jesus? Verse 16, they had been testing Jesus, demanding signs. But unlike them, the Queen of Sheba, when she encountered the wisdom of Solomon, she recognized the wisdom to be from God. She responded to God. The people of Nineveh, they were part of an evil Gentile city. And the Bible, outside of Jonah and this story, never speaks of Nineveh positively, except in the case of Jonah. He's, he's one of the most reluctant prophets in all of Scripture. He has no desire to go to Nineveh. He runs the opposite way, but eventually God prevails upon him and he goes to Nineveh. But when he arrives in Nineveh, Jonah preaches what could be called like the most lackluster sermon of the entire Bible. Yet in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That'd be like if Jesus came like, I'm the son of God. See ya. So he just tells them the facts. He doesn't call for a response. And yet Jonah's weak and effortless preaching, elicited a huge response from the people of Nineveh. As a nation, they repent. The king demands 
a fast. Even the animals have to repent. Nineveh responded to God. So what is Jesus doing with these two examples? Jesus says that the queen of Sheba, she will rise up with this generation at judgment and condemn it. The people of Nineveh will rise up with this generation at judgment day and condemn it. By the time Ted Bundy was arrested, he killed at least 28 children and young women in horrific, horrific ways. And in jail, it was reported that Ted Bundy made a personal confession in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. And the day before he was executed, he had agreed to do one last interview with a famous Christian evangelist who had a radio show. And in that interview, he was asked about his faith and he was asked about any sense of remorse. Here's what Ted Bundy said. I know people will accuse me of being self-serving, but through God's help, I've been able to come to the point much too late where I can feel the hurt and pain I'm responsible for. I can't begin to understand the pain that the parents of these children and young women that I have harmed feel. And I can't restore much to them, if anything. I won't pretend to, and I don't even expect them to forgive me. I'm not asking for it. That kind of forgiveness is of God. Whether or not you believe that Ted Bundy's confession in Christ was sincere, here's a question. What if Ted Bundy rises up at Judgment Day and judges you because he responded to the kingdom of God and you didn't? That is an uncomfortable question, isn't it? Now, I feel the same way that you do about that question. I don't like it. What business would someone like Ted Bundy have telling me whether my life was fundamentally good or evil? When Jesus brings up the Queen of Sheba, when he brings up the people of Nineveh, the audience listening to him would have the same response. What business would they have judging us? You have to remember that to a Jewish audience, they believed at Judgment Day the Jews would rise up and judge the whole world. And now Jesus is telling them that Gentiles are actually going to rise up and judge them. Just as we say, you know, I'm a good person, I'm not like Ted Bundy, these people would look to other people comparatively to establish their goodness. I'm a good person, I'm an Israelite, I'm a part of the kingdom of God, I'm not from Sheba. Or I'm a good person, I'm not an evil Ninevite. They'd be thinking the exact same thing. What business would these people have judging us? So what is Jesus doing with this this very challenging illustration. He's challenging their goodness by challenging how they determine it. If our goodness is simply determined by a sliding scale, then yeah, it's not all that hard not to be evil. That's what's happening if our goodness is based on comparing ourselves to others. You might think, well, I'm a pretty good person. You might even think I'm fine or I'm okay. You might even realize I'm not all that great of a person, but I'm not evil. But Jesus says that your place at the judgment day of God is not determined by your moral performance. It's not determined by whether you think you're good or bad or how you fare in comparison to others. It's determined by your response to God. Think about the people of Nineveh. They responded to God. And we see there that their scale of comparison wasn't based on comparing Nineveh to other cities. It may have at one point. But they hear of a God, and however they understood God, they knew that if, by definition, God is righteous and perfect and holy, full of justice, 
And if he says that they're evil and destruction's coming, that in comparison to that, any crack, any absence of goodness, yes, makes them evil and they better repent. They didn't try to fight back against the message and say, actually, Nineveh is doing pretty good. We're, we're a bunch of good people. They repented. And now Jesus says something greater than that's here. Something greater than the wisdom of Solomon. Something greater than the message of repentance to Jonah. I'm here. The kingdom of God, the people he's talking to, the kingdom of God is in their midst. And they refuse to respond to such a great message. A, a message that the, the scriptures tell us that angels wanted to peer into, that the prophets throughout history just wanted to know. Instead, they respond arrogantly by asking for more signs, by testing Jesus, by setting themselves above Christ to judge him. So the challenge of the kingdom then is that we have to have a proper response to get into it. The challenge of the kingdom is that we can't pry our way into it. It has to come to us and we have to respond to it. But what then does a proper response to the kingdom of God look like? What place should the kingdom of God take in our lives? Jesus, in a very Jesus-y fashion, tells a parable. Verse 33. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. So here are the components. We have a light, a stand, and a basket. And you have to, you, obviously, like this light is from Palestine, ancient Israel, right? You, you have to remember, they didn't have electricity and the technology we have. So when the sun sets in, darkness also sets in. So if you wanted to see around the home, you needed a few components. You needed oil, you needed a wick, you needed lamp, and you needed a stand, and you needed some source of fire. And you would light, uh, you would light the lamp, and you would put it on a stand because the the lamp needed to be central in your house. It needed to be put in a place of prominence so that the whole house could be lit up and so that everybody could see. If you didn't have the lamp placed properly in your house, you were just bumping around in the dark. And then Jesus says, it would, it would just be ludicrous if someone took this lamp then and put it under a basket or in a cellar. You would be snuffing out the light. You wouldn't be able to see through your home whatsoever you would be stuck in the dark. What's at the heart of this parable? Jesus is saying he is the light. St. John writes, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Light represents in the scriptures true goodness, perfect morality. Jesus contrasts evil and darkness as pure goodness and pure light. And in comparison to a lamp, Jesus needs to be at the very center of our lives. That's what a proper response looks like. We don't keep Jesus, you know, in a basket, kind of sort of shining on our lives. He, he needs to be preeminent. He needs to be centered around our lives, which means uh, great work needs to be taken to center our lives around the light, allowing him to be the center, to shine in all of our dark corners. Jesus continues in verse 34, Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, and the Greek here is actually literally evil. So when your eye is evil, your body is full of darkness. 
This gets confusing because he's using a sub-parable. So it's another parable using the same things, but it's making a different point. To have a healthy eye, Jesus is saying, if you see me rightly, if you put me on the stand, if you take me into your life, then you will be filled with light. But if you don't see me rightly, if you deny me, if, if you don't respond to my message and you ultimately put it under a basket or, or into a cellar, then you will be filled with darkness. What Jesus is driving at with this parable is that how we see him and how we respond to him will determine if our lives are illuminated by his light or not. And it comes with a warning. Jesus says in verse 35, Therefore be careful, lest the light in you be dark. In other words, be careful that you don't call something light when it's actually darkness. Because what we set our gaze upon, what we center our lives around, it fills us. And when we don't put Christ in the center of our lives, we're actually filled with darkness, is what he is saying. Darkness means that we can't see. We can't see what is truly good. We can't see what is truly bad. We're essentially blind when it comes to spiritual realities. And darkness means even mistaking darkness for light. But here's the thing. If we don't put Christ on the stand, if we don't put Christ in the center of our lives, something else ends up on the center. Something else takes the place that Christ is supposed to have. So that's the question. What is at the center of your life? What do you live for? A good way to detect this um, is to ask, what, is there something in your life that you simply don't want Jesus to touch? If you saw that thing and wanted to touch it, you would, you would back away. When I first became a Christian, I was living with my girlfriend at the time. And as I made some friends, well-meaning friends, they would sit me down and say, look, we need to talk to you about this. We don't think this is, is healthy for you. And I would get so defensive. I would say, you have no right to talk to me about this. It wasn't, it wasn't up for discussion. I thought, you're just trying to push an archaic belief onto me. We live in the 21st century now, man. And really, they, when I look back on it, they did it so compassionately with so much understanding. But what happened was they were trying to touch an area of my life with the gospel that I simply didn't want to be touched, that I didn't want to be illuminated. This area of my life, my, my freedom to do whatever I want, however I want, was at the center of my life. And they were saying, you need to take that down. But that wasn't up for discussion because I'd already determined that was at the center of my life. Maybe at the center of your life is entertainment. Your whole life revolves around being entertained. Where's the next great restaurant you're going to eat? That's always the question. Or what's the next show that you're going to see? Or where am I going to travel next? What's the next great travel destination? And so all of your time and your money and your effort goes into keeping yourself entertained because that's where you derive a sense of satisfaction and contentment. And you may even be driving yourself into crippling debt, but you would rather be a slave to debt than a slave to boredom or a slave to responsibility. And so you don't want Jesus to touch this area of your life. You've, you've realized, because if he does, you have to see that, although it looks like entertainment that you've put in there, What's filling you is greed and self-indulgence. That's really what's at the center of your life. 
Maybe you love being accomplished. Your, your whole life, the center of your life is about building up your portfolio, whether it's a design portfolio or whether it is a financial portfolio or whether your portfolio is the temple of your body. You're, you're building everything up. It's all about your sense of accomplishment. But really, it's about approval. It's about being recognized. It's about having success. And you don't want Jesus to touch your sense of accomplishment because if, if he does, you'll see that what's actually filling you is, is ambition, which has a side effect of relentless jealousy and insecurity. Maybe like me, freedom is at the center of your life. You don't want to be locked down into a relationship. So... You, you just hop from person to person, or you don't want to be restricted by a job, so you're never really faithful to any place of work, or you don't want to have to keep any sort of beliefs that you feel are being pushed upon you. So you want the freedom to sleep with whoever you want, whenever you want, to do whatever you want, wherever you want. You want the freedom to believe whatever you like, which is just the things that make you comfortable. And you don't want Jesus to touch that area of your life, because if he does, you'll see that you're really filled with selfishness. The center of your life is you. And, and it, it comes with the byproduct of entitlement. I want to ask you, whatever it is that you center your life around, whatever it is that you don't want Jesus to touch, how's that working out for you? You may instantly recognize this is not going well anymore. You might see that um, these pursuits of, of different things, they actually mask something more insidious in your heart. And you may see that whatever it is you put at the center is filling you with constant insecurity and jealousy and fear, or, or you always have anxiety about it because you think, what would I do if that is gone? Or, or there's a great depression about it because if people knew what it is that really you seek after, the things that you give your life to, it's just a shaming. You're, you're filled with shame, and, and so you're depressed or whatever it is. You, you just know that the thing that's at the center, it's not working. And that's because the light is beginning to shine in the dark. But for some of you, you might think, I'm just fine, thank you. You're, you're not more than fine. That's still actually working out for you, the thing you have at the center. But if you can't recognize in your day-to-day -day life of however it is that you live, whatever it is that you live for, some sense of dissatisfaction, some sense of lack, some sense of this, like there should be more. It's either because you're being dishonest or you're in denial or because you've actually become blinded by the light that you can't see anymore that there's more. Now, I don't watch Lord of the Rings, but Julia does. And apparently there's like dwarves, you know, there's like little guys. And they're mining for gold. And there's this great quote that she told me. The dwarves delved too greedily and too deep. You know what they awoke in the darkness of the mines? Shadow and flame. What's Tolkien getting at here? Darkness begets darkness. And there is a, a depth to darkness where all you can see is the darkness and you actually begin to to like the darkness. Not only do you like the darkness, you have a passion, a burning desire to defend the dark. St. John puts it a different way. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. I get it. I get that no one wants to come on a Sunday morning and and hear that you're evil. And I enjoy telling you that about as much as you enjoy hearing it. But just because we don't like hearing something doesn't mean that we don't need to hear it. And just because something is uncomfortable when we hear it doesn't mean that it's not for our good. When God calls us into repentance and when God calls us to acknowledge evil in our lives, it is never to condemn us. It's actually to bring us into more life. It's always for more. It's always for our good. So anytime you feel that twinge of conviction to repent, it's because God loves you. In our passage in Luke, Jesus tells the increasingly large crowds that there's so much more to see than signs. They're they're beholding the light. And to behold the light means to recognize that you're in darkness, which meant they needed to recognize that Jesus has the authority to declare them evil. If he truly is God in the flesh, he really does know what he's talking about when he calls this crowd evil. He's challenged them to recognize that if they refuse to respond, they will be left in the dark. And whatever it is that is at the center of their lives needs to crumble because Jesus as the king of the kingdom of God needs to have that place. He needs to be center. He needs to be their all. So how then do we get out of the darkness into the kingdom of God? Where's the power for that? It comes back to the sign that Jesus gives us, the sign of Jonah. While in Luke's gospel, this is fundamentally about calling people to repentance like Jonah did. Uh, The sign of Jonah is also about resurrection. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is saying the sign of Jonah is also about how he will die. How he will be crucified and he will die and he will remain in the tomb for three days. But what's amazing is that the darkness of death cannot defeat the light that Jesus resurrected. And what he's saying is if you want a sign, and this applies to all ages and all times, if you want a sign, the best sign you have is the resurrection. The historical evidence for the bodily resurrection of Jesus within time and space is astounding. If you're not sure you believe in Jesus, I would say start there. Look up a guy named N.T. Wright. He's written like 1,200 pages on the the reliability of the history of the resurrection. That is the best sign you are ever going to get. I don't care if you have spiritual experiences. I, I hope you do. I hope you have them in a way that deepen you. But the best sign that Christ will ever give is the sign of his resurrection because that sign tells us that the power of his light defeats the darkness. It tells us that Jesus really does shine forever and that he is the true light. And the implication of that is even if you deny him, he still shines. The the truth is one day every single person will stand before Jesus. And I get that we all have kind of mythological pictures of judgment day because of what our culture tells us, but the Bible is very clear. There will be a day of judgment. 
Whatever it looks like, whenever that takes place, on that day, all our darkness will be exposed. All of the secrets of our hearts will be exposed. We will be laid bare before God. All of our darkness on the table. All of the things we don't want anybody to see. All of the secret sins that we've cherished. Exposed. And you will either stand condemned for it, because you're guilty of it, or you will stand forgiven of it because you responded to the forgiveness offered by Jesus. At judgment, it won't, the outcome of judgment day will not be based on our moral performance. It won't be based on the fact that you thought you were a good person. It won't be based that you thought you might have a deathbed conversion. It will be based solely on how you responded to Jesus in your life by placing your faith and trust in him. It'll be based solely on your response to his light. And here's the reality. If you reject the light in this life, when you see the light in its glory, you will shrivel up and you will hide away in the dark. And while God is pursuing you to bring you out of that dark, he will never force you out of that dark. And if you reject the light now and you love the darkness now, when you're at judgment day, you will continue to love the darkness. And so Jesus wants people to come out of the dark and into his kingdom, which means we repent and we believe. Because we can never come into the kingdom by our own strength. We have to make Jesus the center of our lives. We have to put the lamp on the stand so that Christ can shine. And, and the effect of that is hard at first. I get that. It's a little scary to think of Christ shining in our lives and revealing all the darkness in the lives that we don't want to see. But the truth is that you are never so far gone. You have never done something so embarrassing. You are not so broken or dirty that God will not pursue you, that God somehow doesn't love you. It's actually exactly as you are in the dark, full of sins, full of things you don't want people to know about, full of embarrassing things that you're seeking instead of Jesus, that God loves you there, that the light pursues you there. You're never too broken. You're never too dirty. You're never too vile. It's there that Jesus offers forgiveness. He ends the parable in verse 36 by saying, If then your whole body is full of light, having no part in dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. When Christ shines into our lives, the darkness will inevitably flee. And while the darkness lingers on this side of eternity, the promise is that Christ will shine so brightly in us that there will be no more darkness. There will only be the joy and the love of Christ. So here's the question. What are you going to gaze at? What are you going to put at the center of your life? If you want into the kingdom, you need to repent and believe. That is always for our good because God is always offering us his unending love and his unending presence.